remind you, 007, that Blofeld's dead. Finished. The least we can expect from you now is a little plain, solid work. Welcome back to another exciting episode of the 007 Minute, where each and every other day we go over one minute of one of the greatest, one of my favorites uh, of the Sean Connery era Bond movies, the 1971 Guy Hamilton directed feature, Diamonds Are Forever. I'm one of your hosts, Jim O'Kane of TVDads.com. And I'm host number two, Mark Cerulli of Illuminar.tv. And uh, we are thrilled to have uh, a very distinguished guest, uh, author, Humanitarian Editor-in-Chief of Cinema Retro Magazine, my old buddy, Mr. Lee Pfeiffer. How are you guys? Looking forward to uh, analyzing a bit of this uh, vintage James Bond film. It's, it's very exciting to have you here, Lee. Now, Lee, you, have, you go way back with the uh, Bond analysis um, uh, industry. <laughs> uh, could you tell me where, where you first started uh, uh, discussing Bond on... Well, I, I saw my first Bond movie in 64 when I was eight years old. It was from Russia with Love. I didn't even know what it was. I went to see the second feature, which was Vincent Price and Twice Told Tales. <laughs> and uh, my dad said, let's stay for this other movie. I said, I don't want to see a love story about Russians. You know, and, yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, He said, no, this guy's some kind of a spy they're all talking about. And I got hooked on that one and then you know, became like a... Like most people my age, grew up in the 60s, a big Bond aficionado, big fan of it. And later on, when I started writing professionally, um, uh, to make a long story short, uh, I was contacted by Cubby Broccoli, uh, co-producer of the Bond films, and uh, he, the early ones, and uh, he went on, of course, to produce the later ones himself. And he floated the idea that uh, I should write a book about the history of uh, James Bond and... uh, a friend of mine, Phil Lisa, and I wrote it in the early 90s. It was quite successful, and that opened a lot of doors. And over the years, I licensed products. Uh, Mark and I made documentaries about the making of these films uh, back when nobody else was doing such things, really. And uh, uh, first they went on VHS and laser, yeah. and I guess now they're out on Blu-ray. And I wish we had a penny for every one sold, Mark. It, but, it doesn't uh, work that way, uh, unfortunately. Yeah. And then uh, some years ago, I started a magazine called Cinema Retro with my uh, business partner in England, Dave Worrell. Cover a lot of Bond stuff in it, uh, both in the magazine and on our website at cinemaretro.com. And we wrote a book uh, that briefly became a bestseller in England, The Essential James Bond, some years ago. So we covered pretty much, uh, I'm bonded out, but... (laughs) I think, uh, you know, revisiting Diamonds Are Forever is is worth a look because it's not one of the films that's discussed as much as the very early Bond movies. And why do you think that is? Well, I don't think there was anything... I, I, you know, unlike Jim, I'm not all that fond of it. I, I think it's the it's the first Bond movie that I went to see in a theater uh, when it opened, opening day. And I, I left the theater distinctly disappointed with it, as did most of my friends. Uh, having said hmm. that, we were stupid enough at age 15. That we went to see it like seven days in a row anyway. So uh, that's when movies cost about $250. Uh, yeah. But uh, I don't, I thought that, I think it's, uh, it just didn't live up to the expectations because uh, uh, first you had Connery leave the series in 67 after you only lived twice which was a great blow to those of us who were bond fans 
And then they brought in George Lazenby, who I think did a fine job. But it came out in the press that he was only going to do the one movie. So just when you like yeah, halfway this guy, during, uh, during production. <laughs> yeah. So he did one movie and I ended up thinking the guy was terrific, but there was no point in getting used to him because, uh, you know, he was gone. And then, oh, then came the news, you know, Connery was coming back. So you thought, this is fantastic. You know, this is really great. Connery's coming back. But I, I think it's the first movie, you know, that really overtly went into almost slapstick humor in certain cases. Uh, Roger Moore usually gets the, the blame for that, but it really started with Diamonds Are Forever. Wouldn't you agree, uh, Mark? Yeah, although I would say, I mean, uh, uh, I loved the film when it came out. I was, uh, you know, I think I was 10 or so, but I, I was so insane, I smuggled a, a huge audio tape recorder into the theater, and I remember... Is, is, that, is that a tape recorder in your pants? Or are you just glad to see, see Sean Connery? Ronald Wood. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember that all those lines and all those gags got huge laughs. So, uh, apparently, no, the you know, audience loved it. You know, audiences loved it. But and the film did I, really I, well, right, Lee? No, it did, it did spectacularly well at the time. And, uh, you know, certainly it was a very popular hit. And critics even liked it. But those of us who were weaned on the first, uh, was it five or six Bond movies right. there? I mean, Connery's very good in it. And there's some good scenes in it. But it's you have to admit, the ending is pretty flabby compared to, like, oh, the yeah. volcano battle and, you know, his glory. The underwater and battle and Thunderball. Yeah. All of a sudden, it, it, it had a cheesy uh, aspect to it. It looked like it was done on the cheap. The, some of the special effects at the end of the film were, were pretty bad, even for 1971. You know, the, the nuclear blasts going off and everything. They were they didn't look good even back then. <laughs> H- having said that, I could watch the movie today. I mean, I haven't seen it in a long time. But I mean, uh, it wasn't. I, I grew to like the good parts more and the bad parts didn't bother me any more than right. they did at the time. Right. So I guess in the balance, you know, I like the movie, but I thought there was something, you know, that didn't quite gel with it. I, I mean, I love the, the music. I love the title song and I like some of the performances, but I think uh, some of the others were miscast. I think uh, Jill St. John was miscast. And uh, I think that uh, Charles Gray, although he, he was a fine actor and he gave a good performance in it, he was not Blofeld. I mean, it's the guy that just killed Bond's wife. And they're trading quips like, you know, Holmes and Moriarty. You know, uh, <laughs> you know I mean, this guy just killed your wife. And, and the movie, it almost looks like it was made by different people <laughs> because it, it uh, by that i mean screenwriters because it is true that a lot of uncredited people always uh come up with ideas for bond scripts so it, you know only a couple people get their name on the credit but there could be a dozen people that contributed this or that and it well there like- was if you yeah i'm sure you you know this way better than than most people there was a whole alternate ending with a boat chase on lake mead if you remember yes. that and and well the beginning starts off very promisingly because bond is on this hunt presumably to avenge the death of his wife although it's never mentioned that's pretty much what it's about and it all makes sense and he you know he goes after blofeld finds him and exacts his revenge on him and then when he finally meets them he realizes that 
guy was a double. I mean, there's, you know, trading barbs and witticisms and, uh, you know, you practically expect them to slap each other on the back. And I think if they had, as much as I like Charles Gray in the film, I think if they called him anything other than Blofeld, I would have accepted it. But And, and there was no attempt to make him look like the popular conception of Blofeld, who at that point... You know, we associate at least with a guy being bald. (laughs) And uh, there was absolutely no resemblance. And making matters worse, only four years before, Charles Gray had co-starred with Sean Connery and You Only Live Twice, playing a different character, a good guy. So it was jarring to see. I don't know why they cast him in this role. I don't think it was appropriate to do it. And Jill St. John... I mean, I guess you can't fault her. She played the role as it was written. But again, it's sort of schizophrenic. When we first see her, she is a, you know, streetwise, tough, like a gun mall. Sort Brassy, of. yeah. Yeah, uh, not, not, not to be... And, and somewhere along the line, she turns into Lucille Ball. It just doesn't, <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah, or even Goldie Hawn. Yeah, like, Goldie just... Hawn. She, she, she's completely inept stupid you know uh, and it's like it's two different characters so the movie has this schizophrenic <laughs> quality to it that's some of the casting's good and some of it's bad the, the guy who mm. plays lighter feel uh, uh, norman burton he's a respected him. character actor I, I thought he was all wrong for uh, lighter i mean they, they don't who's your favorite felix lighter I, you know, it, it's it's funny. He didn't have much to do, but I always like Rick Van Neuter. Yeah, it, yeah, he was wonderful. great. He had the right look, but uh, Desmond Llewellyn, who played Q in the movies, told me that for whatever reason they didn't like the way he came out on film, and they they cut a lot of his of his scene. They cut several scenes, including a very good one. Desmond said he was in with him. Ended up on the cutting room for floor. They they didn't like the way he came across on film. I don't know why. It seemed perfectly fine in. Uh, in the final cut, maybe he wasn't in the deleted footage, which is why it was deleted. But uh... Uh, I, I, I'm still always on a toss up between. Uh, well, for the serious one, I'd pick Jack Lord, and for the not so serious one, I'd pick David Hedison. David Hedison in uh, in Live and Let Die just. <laughs> Well, you know, I have to go along with you, Jim. I've been thinking back on it. I guess because they gave Lord more to do. Uh, a little bit more to do. I, I suppose he was a more commanding screen presence. So, yeah, I, I, I cede your point on that. Um, yeah, Hedison was perfectly fine. Uh, but um, I, I think as you get into the later films, you know, you get a really good actor like Jeffrey Wright as as uh, lighter. But they still don't maximize the character to its full potential. They always kind of keep him in the background. I think there's a lot more for lighter to do in some of these movies. Yeah, I, I actually, you know, I, I think Lee, we're going to have to have you back when Lighter comes in because I've got a billion questions when we when we first meet Lighter in this movie. Okay, uh, and I, <laughs> I just, I just want to get your take on it, but we'll we'll save that for that's minutes away from it. Okay, weather balloon. <laughs> there isn't a low pressure area within three hundred miles of here. Yeah, you know, you're going to spoil it. See, <laughs> all right, we'll all get, right. we'll get, we'll get. Let's uh, let's we're on we're on minute eleven, so let's let's talk a little bit about minute eleven. We're in the middle of. Uh, uh, Sir Donald Exposition here telling everything there is to know about diamonds and mining. And uh, a lot of them, I think this is a lot of the Mankiewicz script that we're seeing here where something's going on on the screen that is exactly opposite to what he's describing. Um, I, I, I like the way he's talking about all, you know, the wonderful social services and amenities that they're providing to uh, to the miners. Well, he's saying to, saying to Mark. And Lee pointed out uh, an interesting point uh, uh, yesterday when we were talking. Well, the point is that it always found it rather curious that 
the the character played by Lawrence Naismith, uh, Sir Donald Munger, uh, he repeats the same exact dialogue like, within seconds. <laughs> yes. You know about uh, the services. The, the industry prides itself on the loyalty and dedication <laughs> of it. And I feel like, well, why does he say that? It's, it's clearly like just clipped and replayed again. It's the same exact dialogue. Yeah. And I can only think that it's just a minor little quirk. But I'm always thinking, like, why did they feel the need to do that unless they just thought it was more effective than having silent footage of these people? I, I don't know. But it's a very weird little little thing that's always, like, bugged me about it. Like, well, why, did they, why did they loop that dialogue? Yeah, I, it's, mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's very peculiar. And, like, how many people... Uh, you know, I mean, this, we're not spoiling it here, but we're talking about they're going to be killing people up and down the chain. So the, the two assassins, Wint and Kid, have to have to get rid of everybody in the pipeline. Does that include the miners who know who was doing it? Or I mean, they, they have to like blow up the mine, as far as I can well, the tell. Funny thing is, this is what I was getting at before, Jim. It, the script on this is very sloppy. It was it was the first one that Tom Mankiewicz, who was a lovely guy. Uh, he was a nice guy, a talented guy, but he was much more suited for over-the-top sort of comedy, and, and logic didn't fit very well into his Bond scripts. And it's with the advent of Tom Mankiewicz that you see, uh, writing along with the revered Bond veteran Richard Maybaum, but I have to think that Mankiewicz's influence prevailed in this because, well, the first Bond movies, the earlier ones, certainly had their share of humor and wit. This one goes pretty far all for broke to get a laugh. I and, think wasn't part of that though Guy Hamilton because he brought a little of yes. that in in Goldfinger. Yes, yeah. and if you remember Mark, years ago, many years ago we had dinner with Guy Hamilton in uh, in London and he uh, he was tell- he's a wonderful guy. Uh, he, he was <laughs> had great storytelling abilities and I have great reverence for him. But we had this dinner and, uh, and we were doing uh, commentary tracks for, at that point, was the laser discs on Goldfinger. Uh, I guess Goldfinger was what we were working on. And he uh, told us over dinner that uh, he wasn't really uh, enamored with Goldfinger because he thought it was too slow and needed more comedic elements. Uh, really, it seems like a perfect film for me. He's, oh, yeah, the whole golf scene just drags, you know, all that stuff. <laughs> so I was like, wow, this, this is really a great scene in the movie. And he always wanted to inject a lot of over-the-top humor. And he told us this story, I'm sure you remember this, Mark, where we're sitting with some other people at dinner, and he said, well, I had an idea for Diamonds Off Forever to, um, before it was totally scripted. He said, I had just come back from Disneyland and I thought, what a marvelous place to shoot a Bond movie. And we'll have Disneyland, where Bond's walking through Disneyland on some mission. And he discovers that all the characters, that Mickey and Minnie and Pluto, are all Spectre agents. Oh, my God. And a big gun. Do you remember this? No, gun I don't battle. remember that. Oh, my God. It was unbelievable. We sat there like our jaws were agape. And he said, and I, I envisioned this, you know, where they're jumping on roller coasters and shooting at one another. And uh, there's a big gun battle through all the attractions. And according to what I remember. Children's God, heads are blowing up. From what I recall Guy saying, this incredibly bad idea actually got far enough that they made inquiries from Disney, and uh, Disney said, (laughs) 
kidding me? You know, we're not going to have a, an explosive wow. battle in this children's paradise. So then they went to another script version that sounded almost as bad, where they were going to bring back Gert Frobe as yes. Auric Goldfinger's yeah. brother. And he was going to be the villain. And the movie was going to end with some big chase on Lake Mead where Bond uh, commandeers all these vessels, that promotional vessels that were attached to the various big casinos and, and lead them out in a big armada on Lake Mead to battle <laughs> Gertrude's brother. Which now so you couldn't do because they'd run aground. Yeah. <laughs> But, now I want to see that movie really bad. <laughs> and then there was yet another thing where, they, where he was originally going to fight Blofeld, I guess, on the oil rig. And then Blofeld gets away in his, uh, you know, submarine, mini sub, and Bond holds on to a weather balloon and follows him to some island where they have a big battle in a cave. A salt mine. Assault my yeah. I, right. I mean, this stuff is. I mean, maybe we did end up with the best possible version of. You know, it's just. Uh, I think. I think it made a lot of money because everyone was glad to get Connery back, and they overlooked the film's flaws. And uh, certainly, there's no doubt that that type of humor that Roger Moore was about to interject in the seventies was the right thing for the time in, in terms of the audience reaction. But, uh, I always had mixed feelings about going too far over the top with it. Wow. Well, fortunately, I think, I think it only pertains to the first half of this, this particular minute that we're looking at where they're, they're bringing in that, that comedic act. But well, kind of, we get into semi-comedic characters here with Mr. The introduction of Mr. Wint and Mr. Kidd. Well, I should say also Lawrence Naismith, who played Sir Donald, went on the following year to co-star with Roger Moore and Tony Curtis in the Persuaders TV spe- uh, series. Uh, he would be uh. the judge that would send them out on missions every week. So he worked with both Bonds within a year. Wow. Uh, we, wow. we, we kept remembering him in uh, um, Jason and the Argonauts. Yeah, wearing the a Argonauts, toga. Yeah. Yeah, he was very esteemed. Uh, very he was esteemed. great. He was great. Worked a lot. Yeah. Yeah. If you if you needed a, a classic uh, upper upper echelon fellow, he was the perfect face for it. We we uh, we jumped to the desert, which I'm assuming this is being filmed in Nevada. Yep. St- yes, standing in for the Transvaal, mm-hmm. and uh, and we meet Mr. Wint and Mr. Kid, um, <laughs> the incomparable team. They are also in the book. Is that correct? I haven't read the book in decades so i can't even tell you my, my expertise is pretty much relegated to the films mark do you remember i are they in there the were book? two there were two killers not in the book as, as gay couple i wouldn't think there no there were two killers in the book uh i'm not sure they were named winton kid i'll have to reread it i don't think so uh the, i mean it's interesting casting here because uh uh, you know, Bruce Glover was already, you know, a, a relatively. It was. I'm sorry. I'm just reading here. James Bond wiki. Uh, they were Wint. The, the names were going to be Wint and Gore, but Fleming changed Gore to uh, Kid at the request okay. of his wife's cousin, who was named Boofy. Gore. Good research. On the cuff. Good, good research. <laughs> yeah. I, I was. I didn't know whether they were or not, but the. the uh, Bruce Glover, who played Mr. Wint, was already a, you know, a fairly familiar face as a character actor in, in films. This was his biggest role to date, certainly his... Uh, At least until Walking Tall. 
Yeah, it advanced his career, no, no question of it. But the interesting thing is Mr. Kidd, you know, the droopy hound dog looking guy, but Potter Smith was a jazz musician. Yeah. He had no acting experience whatsoever. And I don't think he ever did anything else on film after this. I've gotten to know both of them out here. And uh, uh, he said nobody was more surprised than he when he got a call to to come down to Universal and shoot an audition tape. And he was like, do you want me to bring my my bass? And they're like, no, you don't have to. Well, who, who discovered it? I mean, ordinarily, in most films. He, uh, Guy, Guy Hamilton was in L.A. and went to a jazz club. Putter was playing, and he saw him, and he said, oh, <laughs> there we go. There's Mr. King. I mean, only Guy Hamilton would do that, you know? Well, it's funny. The Bond films are outside the normal frames of how conventional movies are made because ordinarily supporting actors are cast by uh, the casting director. I mean, it's, that's generally their job. It's up to the casting director who are very undervalued people when it comes to uh, putting together the, the great characters that we've seen on, on films. So ordinarily it would fall to the casting director, but the Bonds are very much... There were contributions from people all over the place. I mean, Cubby Broccoli used to just listen to anybody who had a good idea. It could be a fan. It could be somebody he met on the street. Uh, he would take the ideas and write them down. And if he couldn't use them in the next picture, he might use it in one five years from now. And one of the things that he was always open to himself uh, or anybody else, if he saw somebody that looked appropriate for a part in his next movie, he would just offer it to them. So I think this guy Smith did a very good job. And you consider how uh, he had no acting experience. He, he acquits himself very well. I mean, it was, I mean, it's, it's completely politically incorrect to, you know, exploit a gay couple like mm. that in movies today. But at the time, uh, you know, it was all the norm to make light of such things. So there is a, you know, sort of a cringe-inducing element to watching it today. But they're two very good performances, and they, they did a good job, both of them, I think. As, as I watch Putter through this entire film, I keep thinking... He he looks like someone who won the James Bond fan club uh, be in a James Bond movie. <laughs> and he just seems to be enjoying himself so much in every scene. He's like, oh, this is pretty good. Well, I just remember him yeah. telling me how enthusiastic he was when I guess the first scene that, that he shot was, uh, and we're getting ahead of ourselves a bit, but uh, 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 putting Connery in the trunk of a car. And he said, I, I looked down and... And there's Sean Connery in the trunk of a car. And, and I have to thank uh, Anders at, uh, from Sweden with Love for, for hooking me up to do an interview, uh, God, I guess years ago. Is Putter still with us? Is he still uh, Yes, yeah, he's, still he's, he's, out in, uh, he's out here in L.A. and he still uh, plays. They, they do, uh, he and That's his wife, great. VR, they do jazz dates. Well. Yeah. It's great to know he's doing well. No, very good. Well, uh, we're just we're just about coming up to the end of this minute. We're we're going to see Doctor Tynan getting off his uh, his motorcycle. I don't know what type of motorcycle that is, but it definitely looks like product placement. As, <laughs> as we get a clear shot of that fuel tank, um, let's uh, let's pick up a little bit more of this uh, to, uh, on our next two days from now. Our, our next episode, which will uh, will go into what the what Bruce is going to do with that uh, that scorpion. Um, but for folks who would uh, who would like to join us more on the conversation, we are always available on Facebook at uh, Operation Grand Slam. Just look for us on Facebook. Uh, also find us at the big site, uh, 007minute.com, where you can pick up previous episodes, look at future episodes, and uh, you know just generally find out what's going on with the show. Uh, but we will see you here back uh, back here in the middle of uh, the N Nevada version of the Transvaal uh, when we continue uh, on our next episode of the 007 Minute. So 
Until then, say goodnight, Bert. Goodnight, Bert. Goodnight, Bert. <laughs> Bert Saxby? Yeah. Tell him he's fired.